Amen. Good morning. Oh, you could do better than that. Good morning. There we go. You're awake now. All right. And welcome to all of you who are joining us from your homes this morning. It's good to be with you. Before we get into our message this morning, just a couple of things I wanted to note today. I wanted to thank Nicole for leading our worship night on Wednesday. Uh, yes. Uh, and I also want to thank uh, Nathan and Mandy Lambert and Nate Trussell for being a part of her team and for those of you that were here. And if you weren't here, like me, uh, I've already watched it. And uh, I plan on watching it again sometime. Uh, so I would encourage you to go out there on our website and watch Worship Night. It will encourage and refresh your soul. And then Friday night, we had our big youth activity uh, here at the church, and I've already heard some wonderful things uh, about that night. And uh, so looking forward to, uh, in a week or two, Steve coming up and sharing some, some highlights of what happened that, that night uh, for our youth activity. We are going through the Gospel of Luke on Sunday mornings looking at the story of Jesus. And today we're going to be in chapter 6, the first 19 verses. And we're going to be looking at four different scenes in the life of Jesus as we walk with him. And I would encourage you to just enter in to what's going on uh, as we go through the Gospel of Luke. Put yourself in the pages of Scripture. Uh, what we're going to see today in each of these scenes uh, is a little bit of, of, a, of a different uh, take on Jesus and who he is. And in the first couple of verses, we're going to see Jesus the defender. And then uh, we're going to see Jesus the defier. And then Jesus the discipler. And finally, Jesus the disposer. And so that's where we're going to be. So the curtain is about ready to go up, and we're going to go in and take a look and a walk with Jesus today. We begin in chapter 6, verse 1, and it simply is telling us this, that Jesus was walking through the fields of grain on a Sabbath. Mark that down. The word Sabbath is very heavy in this passage of Scripture this morning. It says while Jesus and his followers were walking through the fields that some of his disciples were picking the grain, rubbing it in their hands, and they were eating it. Now, last week we started to see that Jesus and his followers were beginning to encounter human opposition. We've already seen that Jesus has encountered spiritual opposition when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And he will continue to face spiritual opposition, just as we will when we follow the Lord. But we also, like Jesus, can face human opposition. And he's being dogged, if you will, by the religious leaders of Israel. They are sort of scoping him out, sizing him up, and critically assessing everything that he does. 
And so you'll note then in verse 2, the religious leaders say to the disciples, because the word you in verse 2 is plural. They're not directing this question just to Jesus. They're directing this question to the group and primarily to Jesus' disciples. Why are you doing what is against the law on the Sabbath? That's their question. And so, first of all, we also note that they really don't have a problem with what they're doing. It's when they're doing it. It's this whole thing about the Sabbath that's just got them all riled up. And the reason I say that in these first five verses we see Jesus as the defender is that's exactly what he does in verse 3. Because notice, he answers the religious leaders. He's going to defend his followers. He's going to take up for his followers. I say all that because I want us to know that as well. It's not that God will shield us from going through hard times. It's not that God will prevent us from facing opposition and challenges and obstacles. But what God will always do is he will defend his people as we follow him, okay? He will defend you when you're doing what he's asked you to do. And all the disciples are doing right now is they're just following the Lord. And you would think like there that it's not that big of a deal, right? They're just walking through the fields of grain. They're just munching on some grain uh, in order to, you know, fill their stomachs. And the religious leaders are right there at all times, they won't leave them alone, just watching every move they make. We've talked about that. How do you like to have that in your life? You, you may have people that dog you and critically assess you and whatever, but are they there like every move you make, you can't get away from them? That's what was happening with Jesus and his followers. And Jesus answers them and says, have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry, how David entered into the house of God and took some of the sacred bread that was uh, reserved for the priests alone and that he took it and ate some and gave it to his companions. Jesus is saying, have you not read? Now, obviously, Jesus knows these are the religious leaders of Israel. They've absolutely read this passage of Scripture. They've studied this passage of Scripture. They know exactly where this passage of Scripture is found in the Old Testament. They know every word that Jesus has said. So Jesus here isn't so much saying, have you read it? Do you know what I'm talking about? He's saying, do you know the intent? Do you know the heart of God when he wrote about observing the Sabbath? Because you... The religious leaders of Israel are missing the whole point of God giving the Sabbath to man. Totally missed it. You, you don't even get it, Jesus is saying. So there's several things here we have to talk about. First of all, let's talk about the Sabbath for a moment. When God instituted the Sabbath, he said that man was not created for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. 
and that the Sabbath was instituted by God to be a blessing, not a burden. It was God saying to man, you need to rest one day in seven. You need to get away from your normal activities and even from work because you need to trust that God will provide your needs through your six days of work and that you need to have faith enough in God to provide when you don't work that one day and that you set aside a day in your week, not just not to work and break your routine and rest, but also that that will be the day that you worship the Lord, that you come together with other people in the house of God and that primarily that day is set aside to worship God. Well, through the years, these religious leaders took that good thing and they started to add all these human traditions and all these extra rules and everything on top of it to where it became this rigid, cumbersome, burdensome thing. It was like, you can't do anything on the Sabbath. Maybe breathe. That's about it. You, you can breathe, but man, if you're caught doing anything else on the Sabbath. You're a rule breaker. You're against the law. And they weren't doing anything against the law of God, and that's why Jesus takes them to Scripture. And he's saying something very important that you and I need to make sure that we are absorbing today. And that is that you and I can know the Scriptures in our head. We can quote them. We can know the address of them in the Bible. We have read them maybe many times and we have studied them and yet we can also get to a place like the religious leaders of Israel where we totally miss the heart of God in giving us these scriptures and the intent of God to give it. They totally missed it. And I wonder today how many Christians know certain verses and passages of Scripture, and they think they know the Bible, but they're missing the heart of God in what he's saying. They're missing the intent of what God said in his word. That's very important, and that's why you and I need to make sure that we're not just filling our minds with Scripture and with knowledge of the Bible, but that we're walking with God and getting to know his heart. Because as we know his heart through the relationship that we're building with him, then we can more uh, be able to be in a position to understand what he's saying in his word when he says it. That's why you cannot separate the head of God, if you will, from the heart of God, and even with us, why we cannot separate us walking with God in, in our head way, but also in a heart way every day, and, and combining those, because that's what the religious leaders of Israel had missed. And if they missed it, then guess what? Everyone that sat under these religious leaders was missing it too, because they were teaching the people of Israel to observe the Sabbath in such a rigid, rule way. Yeah, we like rules, you know. We like to just be able to check off our boxes and say that, that's how spiritual I am because I did this and I did this and I did this. But God has never been about checking off boxes and about religion and about, you know, all these rules that we keep and all of that. He's about walking with him, 
building a relationship with him and understanding that the things he tells us to do or he doesn't tell us to do has nothing to do with just checking off boxes and being able to be a good rule follower. It's about enhancing our relationship with him and with other people. And that's why he gave man the Sabbath. And then he says to them in verse 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The word Lord means the one who determines and decides. He's the one who determines and decides what the Sabbath is, not man. He's the one who gave it. Then he should know what it's all about. As Lord of the Sabbath, he's the one that can decide to regulate what takes place on the Sabbath and what doesn't. And I'll even go so far as to say this that these religious leaders who thought that they were honoring God and worshiping God and celebrating God were far from it because they weren't worshiping and celebrating the Lord of the Sabbath who was the one that gave the Sabbath. And you can't worship the Lord of the Sabbath if you're not worshiping the Lord of the Sabbath. Hope you got that. Or I'll say it this way. You can't be properly observing the Sabbath if you're not celebrating the Lord of the Sabbath, you see. And so here's Jesus defending his followers. They were being attacked by the religious leaders of Israel. And, and I think one of the things that we need to apply from these first five verses is to make sure that when we come out of this scene, before we enter into that next scene with Jesus, that we're sort of checking our hearts and saying, have I reduced my walk with God, my relationship into God, into just checking off boxes and being a good rule person and making sure I do this and don't do this? And is that what my life has been reduced to as a Christian? Or is it just about walking with God every day and getting near to him and getting closer to him and understanding his heart and in a sense, his heart beat for things so that when I do go into the word of God and I do read it and I do study it, I'm not just filling my head with the intellectual knowledge like these religious leaders have, but I'm also equipping myself with, with the heart of God to be able to see these scriptures in their right perspective, why God gave them in the first place. Because here again, we see that the religious leaders of Israel totally missed God's heart and intent for the Sabbath day. In fact, later on in the Gospels, Jesus says to these very religious leaders, he says, you have nullified the word of God by your own traditions. Whew. In other words, he's saying, you over the years have put your traditions and the things that you've added to God's word to the point where you've taken all the power and all the force away from God's word. It doesn't hold the weight or the authority in people's lives it should because now you've elevated your traditions and all of your rigid rules and you've put them on equal footing with the word of God. Something that you and I need to make sure that we are careful of. That's why legalism as we call it today and have called it for many years, is still very prevalent in the churches today in America and around the world. It's why many ministries could be characterized not by grace, 
but by legalism, by making sure that everybody's following the rules. And you know, one of the reasons why spiritual leaders, I can say this because I am one, so I can talk bad about them at times, right? <laughs> why spiritual leaders love to, in a sense, rule people with rules, because it's all about control. It's all about people being insecure in a leadership position. So the more rules I give you, the more I can control you. And I'm not secure enough in my own relationship with God as a leader to just let you go and let you discover who you are with God on your own without me trying to create all these rules for you to follow. So that's why spiritual leaders down through history have always been prone to this because actually it's born out of their insecurity, which leads to fear, which leads to this need to control everybody. And so we're going to pile the rules on so that we can tell you all how to live and what to do. Let's move on. Scene two. On another Sabbath, Jesus was in the house of God, which is one of his priorities. We've already said that. You cannot be a follower of God without the house of God being a priority because you see in the life and ministry of Jesus while he was on earth, he was always in the house of God consistently, continually. And what else was he doing there, verse 6? He was teaching the word of God, the two pillars. You've got the house of God and you've got the word of God there in Jesus' life. And then it says in verse 7, that they're just, or at the end of verse 6, there just so happened to be in the synagogue that day a man whose right hand was withered. It was drawn up. He could not use it. And then notice the next verse, verse 7. Oh, here's those religious leaders again. And what are they doing? critically assessing what Jesus is going to do. And they even say, they, they are carefully looking at Jesus to see, is he going to heal on the Sabbath? Because if he is, then that will give them reason to bring formal charges before Jesus to the religious leadership of Israel. It will give them something concrete to bring before the leadership of Israel to say, see, He's not a rule follower. He's a rule breaker. He's a blasphemer. We can get rid of this man. Well, the next verse says Jesus knew what they were thinking. He could see into their hearts as he can see into ours. And when he does that, he says to the man with the withered hand, stand up and come here right in the center of the auditorium, if you will. So, so G Jesus isn't trying to do something, you know, in, in, in some secret place. Jesus is like, all right, you guys have thrown down the gauntlet. I'm throwing it down. I'm drawing a line in the sand today. We're, we're, we're going we're gonna to do some business here today in the house of God. And I'm going to call this man forward. And then he says to all of them, he asks them a question. Is it right to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath day? Is it right to save a life or to destroy it? And you'll notice that question has no middle ground possibility. You can't have a, a middle ground response. It's either one or the other. Jesus is calling them out. What was the Sabbath given for? Again, you are missing the point 
I'm about ready to do something good. I'm about ready to bring restoration and healing, and I'm about ready to do a miracle in the house of God, and you're going to have a problem with it. So what's Jesus doing now? He goes from being the defender of his disciples to now being one who's going to defy the religious leaders of Israel. He is defying their absurd rules and their lack of compassion on this man who's right there in the house of God and the opportunity to heal him is right there in front of them. And then, what does Jesus do? He says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man does so. He stretches out his hand towards Jesus, and it says his hand was completely restored. Our God is a God who restores. Our God is a God who can bring healing and wholeness and restoration. Here's a man whose right hand he was not able to use for who knows how long. Unusable, withered, drawn up, could not do anything with it. And now this man gets his right hand back. Right there in the house of God. And what's the reaction? You, I mean, I don't know about you, but if I saw something like that at the Oasis on a Sunday, you'd probably see me dancing up here. I'm like, hallelujah, thank you, God. You are doing a miracle right in our midst because guess what? God still does miracles in our midst. His supernatural power still exists today just as it did then, and he can bring healing and wholeness just like he did back then. So I'm all for it. God wants to do it. He can do it right here. I'm going to be okay with it. I hope you would be too. But notice the reaction of the religious leaders. The Bible says in verse 11, they are filled with mindless rage. Literally, the word in the Hebrew is, they're mad. And I'm not saying mad as in anger. I'm talking about, they're a little cuckoo. Because you would think religiously, they'd be so happy that this man got his hand back and, and that this healing took place and, and they'd be rejoicing, whatever. No, it says they are debating amongst themselves about what they're going to do to Jesus. Basically, from this day forward, they are going to begin to plan his execution. We don't like this man. He is defying us. We're the religious leaders of Israel. We're the ones who are in control. No, you're not. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord. He decides. He determines. You all have gotten so much power as the religious leaders of Israel, that you now feel threatened and very insecure and fearful by this man, Jesus, and so it's time to take him out. Wow. It's crazy, isn't it? How we can become that way in our lives. We can allow fear and insecurity and, and, and the feeling of being threatened by others to just cause us to do and say crazy things, to literally become mad to be blinded by anger and by rage, and that's where the religious leaders of Israel were at. Think about it. Jesus does not allow 
opposition to deter him from doing what God has called him to do. He's leaving us an example. Jesus never said we would not face challenges, obstacles, opposition in our walk with him and in following him as disciples. What he is asking us to do is don't be deterred. Don't be detoured by your opposition. Don't let those who are opposing you and rising up against you and trying to get you to back down, if this is what God wants you to do, then you do it, regardless of what their reaction and response is. You do the right thing before the Lord of the Sabbath. You do the right thing before God. You listen to the voice of God, not the voice of people. You don't live for the praise of people. We live for the audience of one. And that's what Jesus is showing here. So two scenes down, two more to go. Then we come to verse 12. It says, around the same time, Jesus went out into a mountain to pray, and he was there all night in prayer. Now, we know Luke has already told us about the priority, the primacy of prayer in Jesus' life. If Jesus, the Son of God, spent so much time in prayer, how much more should you and I spend time in prayer? And I don't know about you, but it's been a long time since I spent a whole night in prayer, (laughs) where I actually lost sleep at night because I was up praying all night. That's pretty convicting. Jesus wasn't just out there praying. He was out there praying all night to God. And I want you to see the context, though, of this, too. The next day, he's going to make very important choices in his life. And so you'll note that before he makes these very important choices about who's going to be his disciples, who's going to be on his team, who he's going to choose to be on his team, that he is bathing that decision in prayer and he's talking to his father about it. Again, Jesus is leaving us a great example that when you and I are faced with choices and decisions in our life, especially those spiritual decisions, things like, Who are we going to disciple or who are we going to partner with and and who are we going to do these? That we better be bathing these things in prayer and make sure that they are God-directed, that we are not primarily being driven by our own emotion and our own feelings, but, but what God wants, what God wants, you see. And do we... Pray without ceasing, talking and listening to God each and every day, as Jesus did. Because then it says, when morning came, he called his disciples. Now, they were called disciples or followers, obviously, before this. You remember the scene back in the boat with the fishermen that Peter, James, and John had already left their fishing business full time and started to follow Jesus. And even we saw last week where Levi, the tax collector, left his tax booth and began to follow Jesus. But what Jesus is doing now, it's more of an official thing. It's literally saying to these 12 men, I want you on my team and I'm going to disciple you. And what is a disciple? A constant companion 
one who will accompany Jesus all the time, which is why then that also teaches us something about discipleship. Discipleship can happen anytime, any place, anywhere. Discipleship's classroom is everywhere. Jesus already held a class back when he was walking through the grain fields. That was a classroom. That was a, that was a class on being a disciple as he's walking through the grain fields. Then when he comes into the synagogue and heals the man whose hand was withered, there's another class. See, discipleship is just doing life with Jesus every day. And so our life and every scene of our life is a classroom. It's a training time where God can teach us things and, and we can be trained as, as his followers. We, saw, we already saw, too, where a disciple is a fully devoted, fully dependent follower of Jesus Christ. All Christians are not disciples, but all disciples obviously have to start with being a Christian. And one of the things that God wants to do throughout our study of Luke and the story of Jesus is to call all of us to be disciples. Because the Great Commission is to go and make disciples of all nations. And as I've already said, you cannot make something that you're not. You and I have to first be a disciple before we can make disciples of others. And so God is continually calling people not just to a relationship with him, but also to follow him in that way as a disciple. And only you and God know whether you're a disciple or not. But that's what God wants to do, just as he did in that day. He was calling disciples. And notice it says he chose 12 of them. And we're not going to get into all this today, but it's very interesting. He chose such a diverse group. They all weren't the same. God loves diversity, which is what we see in the body of Christ today. And yet he was going to try to build them, and it was going to take time, into a unified force. Now, we know that takes a lot of time. And it takes just time spending time with Jesus every day is what they were going to do over the next three years. He was literally going to mold them and shape them into the men that he wanted them to be and the followers he wanted to be. And then it also says he also named them apostles. The word apostle simply means one who carries a message or one who is representative of another. And you, you and I are the same because you may not you know, be an official apostle. I'm not an official apostle, right? Because one of the reasons that, that people were called apostles in the New Testament was they had to be the witness of the resurrection of Jesus. And obviously, you and I have never been the witness of the resurrection of Jesus. But we are apostles in this sense. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. An ambassador is simply one who represents Jesus in everything that we do, everywhere that we go, to anyone that we meet. We are a representative of Jesus Christ as his ambassador. And we are to carry the message of God with us everywhere we go. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the power of God unto salvation. So we are, in a sense, a, an apostle. An apostle. Now, I only want to talk about two today in this list. I want to talk about the first one and the last one. 
The first one, it says, his name was Simon, but Jesus named him Peter. Why do we want to stop here? Because the name change was Jesus saying to Peter, you're not Peter yet, but through following me and being my disciple, I will transform you and change you into a Peter, a rock. In other words, it's Jesus seeing the progress and the potential in Peter when he says, I'm going to name you Peter. And the reason I want to say that is because Jesus feels that way about every last one of us. When he looks at us, he doesn't see where we are right now. What he sees is the progress that we can make as we follow him as a disciple, the transformation and change that he can bring about in our life, and the potential that each of us has as a disciple. That's what he sees. That's what he sees. And he wants you to be encouraged by that. You and I never have to stay where we're at. In fact, we won't if we're one of his disciples. Because just like these men, they all changed for the better or for the worse. And that's why then I want you to go down to verse 16. The very last one mentioned, obviously, is Judas Iscariot. But what I want you to see, what Luke points out, is this phrase after the name Judas Iscariot. It says, he became a traitor. See, Judas wasn't this bad guy when he first started to follow Jesus. He became a traitor. Now think about that. I know it's going to blow some of your whole things away of how you look at things, right? Because for many of us, it's all about environment. It's all about keeping, keeping ourselves away from from the bad things and making sure that we surround ourselves with the good things and all of that. I mean, that's what we do with our kids and our grand, right? We're so obsessed about that, right? It's all about environment, environment, environment. Put them in the right environment and they'll be good. No. Because everybody has a free will and everybody has that heart choice that they have to make. And there was nobody who was ever in a better more optimum environment than Judas. He walked with Jesus every day. You couldn't have a better teacher. You couldn't have a better discipler. You couldn't have someone better to look out for you spiritually and to put you in the right place at all times. And yet Judas, in that environment, became a traitor. Because it's more than environment. It's why you can come to a church where maybe we have an environment that you can spiritually grow, but it doesn't automatically mean that everybody's going to grow because we all have that free will and that choice of what do we do with the environment that we have. And all of us can reject that environment. We can reject that influence and we can go our own way just like Judas did. Some of us can be Peter and some of us can be a Judas. But the point is this, we never stay who we are. As I've said many times at the Oasis, we're either moving forward with God or we're moving backward with God, but we never stay the same. And being in the best of environments doesn't guarantee spiritual success and prosperity. Judas, example number one. He became a traitor after 
he started to follow the Lord. Because he allowed other influences into his life, and he made those choices. And God allowed him to, because God gives us all a free will. Then we come to the final scene, verse 17. It says, Jesus and his followers, those 12 men, made their way down from the mountain a little ways to a level place. And there are three groups of people you see in this final scene. You see Jesus and his 12 disciples that he's just called. Then the Bible says in verse 17, there's this other group of disciples or followers of his, and they are a very large group who've now met the disciples, the 12 and Jesus, at this place. And then the third group is this vast multitude of people who have so many needs in their life, who've come from Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast towns of Tyre and Sidon. And notice at the end of verse 17 what they've come for. They have come to hear him because the need of teaching is great in our lives, and they have come to be healed of their diseases. The need of healing is great. Notice the needs are overwhelming, just like they are here today. Those that we can't see because you're viewing us from your homes tonight or this morning and those who are here tonight. The, the needs just in this room alone are overwhelming. And you and I, we, we can't meet all these needs. But we know a God who can. We know a God who all the needs put together in all the world at one time aren't too much for him to handle and to deal with. And you see that even in a microscopic level here in this passage of scripture it says in verse 18 even those who were suffering from evil spirits were cured they were being tormented by these evil spirits but they were being restored back to sanity again if you will and wholeness but then it says this verse 19 all of them in this huge throng this huge crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. Wow, what a picture. Just a touch. Just getting to touch Jesus, and they were receiving this supernatural power to be able to be healed and made whole and restored again. Maybe some of us need a touch from God today, a fresh touch. Maybe we need some kind of healing or wholeness in our life. Maybe there's something that in our life that needs to be aligned with the Lord. Because you can see then in these last two scenes that Jesus is the discipler in verses 12 through 16, but he's also the disposer. He's giving of himself to all the people who were there that day. And the power of God is literally going out from him, disposing itself throughout the crowd to heal them all. You can almost picture the drain that that would have been on Jesus on a human level and why then Jesus would have to get away to be restored and re-energized himself. In each of these scenes, we are seeing a little bit of a different side of our Jesus. And in all of this, Jesus wants us to be inspired to follow him. If you're here today 
and you would say you are not yet a disciple of Jesus Christ, but that you know him as your personal savior, Jesus would be inviting you today, come and be my disciple. If you're here today and you've never accepted him as your savior, then his first expression to you would be, trust me as your savior. Let me come into your life and forgive you of your sin and heal you spiritually first. Then we'll talk about discipleship. And if you are here today or you're viewing us from your homes and you are already a disciple, then these scenes in Jesus' life are meant to just encourage all of us to continue to follow him. Knowing that just like him, there's going to be tough days. There's going to be days of challenge and obstacle and opposition, but just like Jesus, Jesus did not allow all of these things and all of these people to deter him from what God had sent him here to do. And Jesus wants us as his followers to be the same. Do not let all these other factors deter you, distract you, detour you from being who God calls you to be. You do what God wants you to do and Trust God for what the response will be. And that he will be with you. He will defend. He will defend his followers. I'm going to ask Nicole and our worship team to come. And I'm going to ask all of us to stand. And let's be closing this part of our service with prayer. Father, I pray today that all of us, God, would be willing to be a fully devoted, fully dependent follower of Jesus Christ. You never promised us, God, that this would be an easy life. It would simply be the most rewarding, fulfilling, and satisfying life spiritually we could ever have as a human being on this earth. There is no greater calling than being a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any better than that on this earth. And so, Lord, I pray today that all of us maybe have been inspired today to, to continue to follow or to start to follow you because there's no one like you, Jesus. You are so amazing. You are the defender. You are the defier. You are the ultimate discipler. And you are the disposer. You live your life, and even to this day, you pour yourself out for your people. And so, Lord, you are present in this place today, and your power is present to bring healing and wholeness to every last one of us who's here today. And I pray that all of us, God, who need you and recognize our need of you would turn to you right now and allow you to work and minister in our lives as we end our time in your house in worship. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.